Hello and welcome to Write Up Your Algae. I'm your co-host and eternal biology student, Emily Daw, and I am joined today by my co-host and daughter of Nova Scotia Sports Hall of Famer, Clara Ryan. <laughs> Shout out to Rob Ryan. Congratulations, Rob Ryan and the whole Axemen hockey team of 1980. Yay! No, 93. 93! How old do you think my dad is? I don't know, man. <laughs> so you might be asking yourselves... Where the hell have we been? You know what? That's a legitimate question. Great question. Great question. Except if you follow our Instagram page, which I hope all of you are. We kind of decided that since our schedules are getting busier and busier and busier and it's getting harder and harder to produce an episode each week, we're going to be releasing episodes bi-weekly to be (laughs) determined until to be determined dates. (laughs) Maybe one day if things die down and... I don't know, I have more than five seconds to eat my (laughs) supper, then we can do an episode a week. So without further ado, welcome to our second news episode, or as we call it, Biosphere Biosphere Bulletin. Bulletin. (laughs) Just as this is our second news episode, I just wanted to give a little overview as to how these are laid out. Both Emily and I have prepared some stories talking about something that we find fascinating we saw in the news. And we just kind of wanted to relay all this really neat and interesting scientific research that's being talked about in the news to you guys just to let you know what's happening in our world in terms of ecology, wildlife, and environmental science. After all, this is what this podcast is about. And just before we start, I wanted to let you all know that you should follow us on Instagram at writeupyouralgaepodcast, all one word, all lowercase, and this is where we post all the visuals that support our episodes. And there's going to be some really cool stuff this week, especially with our news episodes. I kind of love the first one that we did, and we posted, (laughs) like, for a week straight about different stuff we talked about. As well, feel free, if you find a really cool story on the internet somewhere, and you really want us to talk about it and let everybody know what cool story you found in your local area, you can just send us an email at ruyapodcast at outlook.com and that's R-U-Y-A podcast at outlook.com and just attach to the news story and we'll talk about it in the next Biosphere Bulletin. All right, without any further ado, I will get started with my first story. So although we try to keep these stories a little bit lighthearted, this is probably my least lighthearted of the bunch. So in 2020, 350 elephants suddenly died under mysterious circumstances in Botswana, with 35 dying under similar but still equally mysterious conditions in Zimbabwe. A recent study of six of the elephants, all of which were from Zimbabwe, have disproven past theories and may have found the true cause of the mysterious deaths, at least those that happened in Zimbabwe. Now, why are these deaths mysterious, like I keep putting it? Well, it involved elephants of all different ages and sexes, with many walking in circles before suddenly collapsing and dying. If you'll remember from our episode a few weeks ago where we talked about moose brainworm, that was actually a common side effect. So that made me think, oh, maybe it's going to be a parasite, a new parasite they discovered or something. You know what this makes me think of? You ever heard of the dancing disease back in like the Middle Ages where people would just dance and dance continuously for days? It was caused by a fungus. I thought it was like mass hysteria or something. No, they're thinking that maybe it was caused by a fungus. That is so wacky. So walking in circles, maybe a fungus question mark? Well, what these scientists found was a little bit different. The prior statement from the Botswana government 
was that a cyanobacterial toxin was the cause of this. However, the study published at the end of this October found that the elephants had an unnamed species of pasturella causing septic anemia or blood poisoning. Hmm. So this is a, they discovered a whole new species of pasturella, which is a bacteria. So perhaps this new bacteria was the cause of all of these elephant deaths, including the ones in Botswana. African savanna elephants are declining by 8% a year, primarily due to poaching, with 350,000 remaining in the wild. This study by C. Foggin et al. suggests that infectious diseases should be added to the list of pressures they are facing. As it should. It's still very new and still developing. I mean, these were only uh, necropsies done on the Zimbabwe elephants. There was only six, but I mean... Okay. It must be a lot of work to do a necropsy on an <laughs> elephant. <laughs> you ever hear that joke of, like, how do you eat an elephant? I feel like I have, but I don't know what it is. One piece at a time. Is that it? Yeah. This <laughs> is <laughs> not a very funny joke. I never bought it. I didn't I, I didn't ever think it was very funny, but <laughs> that's my joke about an elephant. <laughs> However, in Canada, we have some potential for more lighthearted news for elephants, a Saskatchewan senator is making big moves in the right direction. Saskatchewan Senator Marty Klein is sponsoring a bill in the Senate and says it can and should lead to the world's first nationally legislated phase-out of elephant captivity. There are currently more than 20 elephants and approximately 30 apes in captivity in Canada, and he is moving forward to complete to ban that completely. I think it sounds like a similar move to the move to ban whales in captivity, yeah. so they're gonna know gonna ban breeding gonna ban obtaining more. Anyway, so it's likely these elephants, should this bill pass, uh, just live out the rest of their lives in captivity. It may still be another couple decades, you know, they do have rather long lifespans before we see the end of elephants in Canada and and apes as well. The bill also goes towards great apes and uh, he proposes that uh, they're too self-aware and too highly intelligent to possibly be held in captivity. And I didn't know this, this article by iHeartRadio pointed out that you don't even need a license in Canada to have great apes, which is like, huh? How'd that happen? (laughs) Yeah. Like I knew in... (laughs) This might sound a little bad. I knew in America you can have a lot of exotic animals of in a course, lot of states. I was literally going to say that. But I don't think about that in Canada, or I don't hear about a lot of people in Canada having exotic animals in themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess. But, you know, like they say in, in that series on Netflix that I will not recommend anybody walk because the animal oh, world are you... I'm yeah. referencing the 2020 TV series documentary that everybody was captivated in and some terrible While people. we were in quarantine. <laughs> yeah, some terrible people in there. But I, it said in there that there's more, like, tigers in America than there is in the wild. Yeah. Yeah, it is heartbreaking. I mean, they should be in their natural environment. And while I do agree that having some forms of animals in captivity can be useful to preserve species and promote genetic diversity, Canada is not the place to have elephants. It's just not. (laughs) No, absolutely not. I mean, they're relatives are buried in the permafrost but that doesn't mean that they also need to be here no (laughs) yeah anyway so hopefully this can be a big move towards removing these beautiful creatures from captivity in canada yeah i believe that's the the right move i do think it's kind of nice that in our lifetimes we are seeing you know a move towards more ethical captivity practices because i think there is still a lot that can be learned from captive animals. Yeah, and even, I know we've talked a lot about this in terms of, like, big 
mammals. Mm-hmm. But I think we should also be looking into other types of species as well, other than the mammal. Like, mm-hmm. I know we associate them with ourselves and say, oh, they have more emotions or whatever. You look into the eyes of an alligator and you're like, well, he's heartless, soulless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We need to understand, like, what kind of ecosystems they live in and actually how much space they need to grow and develop. Mm-hmm. Like, we shan't, we shan't. We should not be restraining these animals to such a small cage when they mm-hmm. need an entire river to live out their, their lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so my next story is a little bit different than Emily's. So I guess we're, we've all heard about this plastic crisis. What? A pl- plastics are a problem? Yeah. So... New news to me. <laughs> yeah, so there's some, been a little tiny, small fraction of research, like very minimal, about plastics as an issue. I'm obviously kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this is a huge issue. Okay, so since we all know about the plastic crisis, everybody's heard the words microplastics probably a thousand times. You are eating plastic every day, blah, 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 blah. Oh my gosh, have you seen those? I just thought about this. Have you seen those TikTok videos of those people that are like, you can't use a plastic cutting board because you'll get plastic, you'll get microplastics from it. Like that, like, that's not what a microplastic is. (laughs) You're not just eating chunks of plastic from your cutting board. Anyway. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it in a couple episodes ago, like microplastics in clouds and like microplastics in the ocean and plastics, you know, killing the turtles and don't use straws and everything like that. So we're trying to find solutions to deal with this plastic crisis. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, we should just stop using plastics, but no. (laughs) That's a pretty big and hard change to make so swiftly. (laughs) Exactly. So I know personally, I've heard a lot of research about microorganisms, fungi, and all sorts of other like tiny microscopic little guys that are eating the plastic, right? We've all heard some story along those Mm -hmm. lines, I feel like. And there's also other suggestions of reducing single-use plastics. I know they've done this in certain places in Canada, although I have some doubts about it because I still see plastics and single-use plastics in grocery stores, so... Yeah, I think they said by, like, 2025, but we're, you know, it's going to be 2024 soon, and it's, yeah, in some ways there's been a reduction, but, I mean, it's still so, so prevalent. The thing I find, the issue that I have with some of these goals that we set for ourselves in Canada especially is that they're not met. They're, Mm -hmm. They're... they're put out there, but we never meet them. We never meet our targets. And this is the same issue of reducing our carbon emissions by 2030. That's not happening. Mm-hmm. So I think that we need to set more realistic goals for ourselves in terms of climate solutions and how we can achieve these solutions. Because it is an extremely difficult topic. And there's so many factors at play. So in this news article by the Washington Post, they talked about another source of plastic eating little guys that are one way we could reduce potentially our plastics in our oceans. So according to the article, there are more than 170 trillion, I say trillion, pieces of plastic in the ocean. And this is doubling every six years. 
So since I have been alive, plastic in the ocean has doubled three times. So that's gone up by six times. Although microorganisms are the primary focus of trying to decompose these plastics, there is a huge issue with degradation at a large scale because obviously you're gonna need a lot of these microorganisms to degrade even the tiniest amount of uh, plastics. These organisms all have this like enzymes that are able to break down plastics. One organism that this article talked about was actually insects. And one of these insects was the mealworm. A study found that species of mealworm can completely live on polystyrene. There's still an issue of large scale production as these organisms need time to process these plastics. Just because something can eat something doesn't mean it's going to continually eat it forever and ever and ever and ever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know when I sit down and eat supper, I can have a bowl of rice, but you can't just give me like 20 bowls of rice to eat in a row. I won't be able to finish that. That's impossible. And this is because every organism has a functional response. This needs to be accounted for when looking at potentially using microorganisms and insects in plastic degradation. What I mean by functional response is basically the handling costs that these that is associated with these organisms. So the time that it takes for them to find the food, the time that it takes for them to eat it, and the time that it takes for them to digest it before moving on to the next meal. Mm -hmm. It's important to note that although these studies are super interesting on ways that we can reduce plastic, especially with these like beetle larvae they talked about in the article, mealworms, and different types of insects. Most of this is happening in the lab and on a laboratory scale. Mm -hmm. And industrialization of these naturally occurring organisms that can decompose plastic with their enzymes is far from being a commercialization process. Therefore, obviously we need more interest and more research. But personally, I think the best way to reduce our plastics in our oceans is maybe not to use them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is a good thing to point out though, the idea that just because something has been proven or works in lab does not mean it has any real world application at all. <laughs> exactly. And I'm sure there could be some, but I think the article said that like one. So I'm going to directly quote this from the uh, Washington Post. So Brandon's research, I guess he was the guy who was, you know, researching these insects into mealworms that eat polystyrene show that on average, 100 of these critters can consume 20 to 30 milligrams of plastic per day. This means it would take 3,000 to 4,000 mealworms to process a single styrofoam coffee cup. At this rate, more than a quadrillion mealworms would be needed to just eat one day's worth of the world's plastic production. So, and we can't just like dump them all in the ocean. <laughs> so not really realistic in my, <laughs> in my experience, but you know. Who's to say, really? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there could be any sort of application for this in, like, within garbage processing plants or anything like that. I don't know. Maybe. But I feel like, I think we just need a different way to combat it. Mm -hmm. Like, sure, it can be a way that we can look at it. Maybe if these... But the thing is, is if plastic's in the environment, it doesn't even mean that it's going to eat it. Because it might not be... It's preferred source of nutrients. Mm -hmm. I don't think plastics is offering that much nutrients to these organisms. Yeah. And I think that <laughs> we need to understand that just because they can live off of it doesn't mean that it's what they want, mm -hmm. right? It was an interesting concept. Mm -hmm. All right, and here's my next story. 
a research team from the University of Cologne in collaboration with the Leibniz Institute for Food Systems Biology made a TART discovery. The taste receptor T2R that in humans allows us to perceive bitterness, thought to have evolved to sense potentially toxic foods and only to be present in bony vertebrates was found in 12 out of 17 cartilaginous fish genomes tested in their study. Each with only one T2R gene, now named the T2R1 gene, the researchers suggested that this may be the original form of the bitter taste receptor, unaltered by gene duplication and subsequent different specialization of resulting receptors. The implications of this are pretty fascinating if you give it a little think, because this gives a connection of 500 million years of evolution, as that was the point of the last common ancestor between bony and cartilaginous fish. Authors then used bamboo and cat sharks to test their ability to taste substances that humans detect as bitter, and found that 11 out of the 95 samples, including things like stomach bile, could activate this ancient version of the bitter gene. While this may seem like a low success rate, it still displays that this feature has been so significant that it has lasted hundreds of millions of years of evolution and still remains relatively the same. That is really interesting. I thought it was pretty cool too. That is so cool. Yeah, I was like, it's it's so interesting because I guess testing our foods for if they're toxic or not d- doesn't seem like something we encounter much today, but you know, it's obviously something that any sort of foraging creature would, you know, it would be pretty useful for, you yeah. know. Uh, and it's interesting that sharks need it too as well. <laughs> Literally, in our, when you just talked about elephants, I was like, oh, you know, all these organisms that we think have no soul like (laughs) here we are sharks have taste receptors and they can tell something's bitter some of the time (laughs) yeah that is super cool i don't know i think sometimes when we think about evolution it it i don't know it, it hits me in the heart a little bit because it's so interesting to think how connected we really all are i know and as humans we think of ourselves the high and mighty we are like the top predator we can kill anything (laughs) tell me i'm wrong anyways the thing is is we are actually so intertwined with the rest of our Mm -hmm. our environment that it's insane and when we discover things like these like these discoveries are just so crucial to our understanding of how we play a role in the environment and how we've evolved over the years i don't know it's just really fascinating yeah it's like when you see like a really old algal fossil and you're like oh that's a cousin (laughs) that was me a great grandma (laughs) i see those mushrooms in the ground and i'm like hey i know you from a past life we used to be besties While we're on the topic of sharks, I did want to bring up something that I only recently learned and I felt that I should take the time to share. So, it's widely acknowledged that sharks and rays are a struggling group of animals. However, a lot of Western people who may be well-meaning have entirely and unfairly placed all the blame on Asian countries and the fishing for shark fin soup. And while shark fin soup fishery is unsustainable and often unethical, I'm not the first person to say this, by a long shot. Mm -hmm. And there are tons of information available on this if you ever want to look at this yourself. But the biggest killer of sharks is not the shark fin soup fishery, it is the fish fishery. (laughs) It is bycatch that is harming sharks, by and large. So if I could just take this time for people to maybe stop pointing fingers to other parts of the world and maybe look at your own home countries and how we can be more sustainable and promote safer practices, you know, locally, rather than maybe blame elsewhere to avoid accountability. 
This isn't to say to stop advocating against shark fin soup, but there are already a lot of people doing that. That is a really huge movement, but there's not maybe as big a movement towards Western countries who are equally and worse affecting shark populations. Yeah. And this is, this is like a really new point of research because this mm-hmm. is, you know, it had um, in the past almost entirely been blamed on fishing practices in Asian countries. And while they are still worthy of critique, it shouldn't be the only point of focus. Yeah, I think that happens a lot and it's not just with the fishery industry. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a, a little sidetrack of what we're talking about today. But in one of my courses, we're doing mercury negotiations, like mm-hmm. international pretending we're international at an international mercury convention and we're talking about how mercury should be regulated and I'm representing the People's Republic of China. Mm-hmm. And as I listen to each country talk about why we should reduce emissions and after the information that I have read, there does seem to be a lot of blame on Eastern Asian countries for mm-hmm. a lot of the issues that are happening. But historically speaking, the research shows that mercury from developed countries like Canada and the United States are actually a really huge source of emissions and re-emissions every single year. Mm -hmm. Whether or not they have a lot of emissions in present day is kind of redundant. It's the fact that historically speaking, from the time, the amount of times mercury can recycle in the environment, Mm -hmm. um, those historic emissions are more important to be looking at than current day emissions of mercury, which I thought was really interesting consider that we always like to place a scapegoat on the issues that we are having yeah especially within industries and and i'm sure there's there's a lot more policy that goes behind it than than i'm familiar with so i'm not going to sit here and say that somebody's right and somebody's wrong Mm -hmm. but i do think it's important Mm -hmm. that we take a look at what we're doing in our own country before we start placing blame on other countries yeah and i do think it's almost like you said, kind of like an easy way out. Like if someone wants to bring forward a policy or wants to get behind a new act or something, it's very easy for the opposition of that to be like, well, it's not actually our fault. It's this other government and we can't do anything about it. Goodbye. Kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing is too, like we, we talk from a privileged standpoint We are a developed country here in Canada. We have less to worry about than the developing nations in in other parts of the world, especially Mm -hmm. considering like places in East Asia and places in Africa. And so I think that when we talk about these issues and just like talking about policy and stuff related on these issues, we really have to consider that, that we are privileged and we have a privileged standpoint on what we're talking about. And some of these other countries do not. When it comes to legislation, we should hold ourselves accountable before placing blame on other places. Mm -hmm. So this takes me to my story. (laughs) So the second story that I found for you guys today uh, was by NBC News, and it's titled, Africa's First Carbon Removal Plant Stokes Question About Responsible Climate Solutions. So Emily, have you ever heard about these carbon removal devices? I know. (laughs) I don't know. No? (laughs) I don't think so. You've never heard about let's take carbon from the atmosphere and store it in the ocean, or let's take carbon atmosphere and store it underground, or let's take carbon in the atmosphere and throw it into space. (laughs) Well, I've heard of that. I haven't heard of the invention of any devices to actually do that. (laughs) Okay, so this has been looked into quite extensively because, you know, instead of solving the issue at hand, maybe it would just be better if we put a Band-Aid on it and call it a day. As an environmental science student, I myself can say... I have some reservations about this carbon sequestration, like carbon sequestration just as a general concept. Okay. 
But that's not to say that I'm the most knowledgeable on this subject either. So I think that maybe if somebody in our listening group has a different standpoint or feels like they know more about this issue, I mean, I've talked about it in classes and I've read this news article, but other than that, I haven't had a lot of experience with it. So maybe if you feel like I'm misinformed somehow, let me know, you know? I'm I'm open to criticism. <laughs> okay, so feel free to critique Clara at ruyapodcast at outlook.com. That is R-U-Y-A podcast at outlook.com. Thank you. They are looking at putting in this carbon sequestration plant in Kenya. In this method of sequestration, carbon dioxide is taken directly from the atmosphere and stored underground. However, this process is very, very, very energy intensive. And I say extremely energy intensive Mm -hmm. (laughs) and therefore this results in a lot of scientific debate as it should and how carbon sequestration is being used and how it will be used in the future however the Climeworks company believes that removing carbon from the atmosphere is going to be an important part of decreasing our carbon emissions worldwide but one of the main issues that was presented in the article is that the removal of carbon in the atmosphere makes it look like Fossil fuel companies are benefiting the environment because they're running these machines and they're therefore becoming carbon neutral. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) so let's talk about some terminology. Emily, do you know the definition of carbon neutral? I mean, just that it and do correct me if I'm not using the right language here, just that the amount of emissions that they're giving off, they're also removing via like tree planting or doing something like that exactly exactly so they're looking to offset their emissions Mm -hmm. so say you know when you go take a plane ride and it's like oh do you want to help us be carbon neutral or whatever and you have like this tax or something that puts on the like pledge to plant like however many trees blah blah blah. i'm sure that's great for them they're making money Mm -hmm. they're not really offsetting their carbon emissions though Planting trees is not going to solve the issue of me flying somewhere. Like, it just, especially if you're just pledging to plant trees. <laughs> I can, I pledge to plant 100 million trees tomorrow. <laughs> Doesn't mean shit. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm sure, you know, there's lots more policy on this and, and, and what have you. But for me, I just don't think carbon neutral is what we should be aiming for at all. No. That's interesting. I haven't heard that angle because if I'm like, I, I guess this is just isn't an angle that I hear about a lot in biology study, but I'm sure you hear a lot about in environmental mm-hmm. science study. But if I'm like in a grocery store and someone's advocating on a product that's a carbon neutral company, that would be something that would incentivize me as someone who does not know much about carbon neutrality to buy it. And I'm sure there's a lot of people <laughs> who feel the exact same way as I do. Exactly. And this is where the whole thing of like going to the grocery store and buying products that say like, oh, this is dolphin free or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> ethically sourced. Like, yeah, yeah. In some regards it is, you know, dolphin free. <laughs> like, I'm sure they didn't chop up a dolphin and put it in your tuna, but they probably had some bycatch. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a regulation of how many dolphins they're allowed to catch as bycatch, you know, have this certification. So there's some issues with, you know, the third-party certification thing. Like, I'm not going to stand here and say that there's nothing wrong with it and that this is the best solution possible. But it's what we have for right now, and this is what we have to go by. But 
When you see carbon neutral, just know that it does not mean they are not emitting any carbon, okay? It means that whatever they're emitting, they're using strategies to decrease this. And one of those ways is carbon sequestration. Now, Emily, the term that I want us to use from here on out when we are talking about this show and talking about reducing our carbon emissions mm -hmm. is net zero. This means no carbon emissions. This means there's nothing to offset in the first place. So mm -hmm. this is what we should be striving for. Mm -hmm. Yes? Yes. Agreed. Okay. So now back to this carbon sequestration plant. Although the plant has not been built, it is going to be finished construction by 2028. And as Kenya is a country that relies heavily on renewable energy, they believe that this industry will be huge in terms of economical advances for places like Kenya, especially when they have this energy market that is untapped. So I do agree with that. I do think that this industry will bring them those economical advantages that they're not seeing right now. As long as Northern countries aren't profiting off of these um, industries that they're building and these plants that they're building, and the money is going directly back into those communities. Yeah, I was just about to ask, is this, this is being built in Kenya? Yeah. By whom? <laughs> not by Kenya. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the thing is, is though, they may see some economical uh, returns to the citizens in mm -hmm. Kenya, which is extremely important. And like I just talked about, about that privileged standpoint that we mm -hmm. have, this also needs to be taken in, into consideration. Kenya is a, you know, still in its developing phases. And who are we to limit their development when we have our own developed country as it is? And so if they're tapping into this, like this untapped market, then who are we to stop them? So it, it is kind of interesting. And there's a lot of different layers to this kinds of things. But anyway, so although it has been talked about and kind of estimated that this method of air carbon capture is can possibly remove 100,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide each year. That is not even the smallest amount of what is emitted into our atmosphere every single year. Can you just take a wild guess how many tons of carbon are being emitted? 10 billion. Oh, Emily. <laughs> how naive. <laughs> 36.8 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide each year. And that'll probably grow. I'm not going to lie. We're trying to decrease it. So hopefully it does decrease like and rapidly, but I doubt that. So as well as this is an energy intensive process, the costs, especially to build infrastructure and the benefit of it seems kind of, mm -hmm. it is unimpressive in the large scheme of things. However, as we look at ways to decrease the carbon dioxide in our atmosphere and keep temperatures, predicted temperature changes like worldwide below that 1.5 degrees Celsius mark, that sweet spot that we want. Maybe carbon removal is a possible, I guess, not solution. Is a possible, one of many possible tools that we have, mm -hmm. in, our, mm -hmm. have in our belt that we can be using. And again, I think that there's many things we should be doing to reduce our carbon emissions. And this involves holding big corporations accountable for their carbon dioxide emissions. And as we talked about, some of these corporations will say they're carbon neutral. But we don't care about that on this podcast. We want <laughs> net zero. <laughs> Anyways, so this means there's no capture needed if we have net zero emissions, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think that, that that I don't know enough about how to not have any carbon emissions, if that makes sense. Like, I don't know how to not do that in most industries. It's unrealistic. Yeah. <laughs> it is unrealistic. I mean, certainly not in 
how we currently get our things like power and (laughs) packaging. I know. And I mean, carbon neutral is okay, but you do have to look at how much carbon they're emitting to be Mm -hmm. needing to offset. I do wonder how they can even measure that and prove that. I don't know. It it is very complex. It's Mm -hmm. not like an easy thing to talk about. Net zero would be great. Obviously, let's mm-hmm. produce no carbon every single year, no carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But then we have other things that we need to worry about, like nitrous oxide, sulfur dioxide, mercury, um, methane, like all these, all these different things. We can't completely stop our carbon emissions, but at least we can reduce them significantly. That where and if we meet these carbon neutral standards of no, you know, our offset that they're so tiny, like the fraction of carbon dioxide being emitted is reduced by threefold. Mm-hmm. Per, like just say then those offsets maybe can lead to a car- carbon negative mm-hmm. emissions like having those net they could be a bit more meaningful yeah exactly so it's not you know kind of giving fossil fuel companies you know a way to say that they're doing good when we mm-hmm. know that this is not the case right thank you claire i i, I love when i can learn lots on this podcast <laughs> well that's great because that's what it's here for <laughs> For our last story, in 2021, the Nature Agreement was first launched between BC and the Canadian government. It proposed that by 2030, 30% of land would be protected from development and conserved to promote native biodiversity. Three weeks ago, this deal was closed, and $500 million has been put towards achieving this goal. A large part of this agreement was to protect old growth forests known to BC, which have been lost over the years due to logging. We love our old growth forests. (laughs) If you live in Nova Scotia, I know there's a project on old growth forests. It's like they're going to the government of Nova Scotia with this uh, petition. I've signed it Mm -hmm. and Zui has signed it. Maybe we can put it on the Instagram. Yeah, if I can find it. So important to protect our old growth forests. Mm -hmm. Like you have absolutely. I have no idea how important it is. I know Mm -hmm. of the importance of it, but there's so much to be undis- like to discover there. Even like certain species of fungi, they only grow in old growth forests, mm-hmm. and these fungi have like untapped potential into medicinal uses. Like it's insane. But yeah, anyway. and it's it's such an incredibly devastating loss to lose them because yes, you know, in a hundred years you can regrow a forest, but you can't regrow thousands of years of biodiversity. Just imagine one of those trees that grow for like. Even in Nova Scotia, we have trees that grow like 300 years. That is a lot of carbon. And we talked about just Mm -hmm. then about carbon neutral or carbon emissions. Chopping down one of those trees is going to release so much carbon. Those roots hold in the ground. It prevents soil erosion, prevent Mm -hmm. that desiccation. Protecting our old growth forest should be number one priority on the list. Mm -hmm. Called the tripartite Framework Agreement on Nature Conservation, it is the first major nature agreement of its kind and will serve as a model of collaboration with First Nations to halt and reverse the loss of nature. Currently, about 15% of land in BC is protected from development and industrial activities, but the province still lacks standalone legislation to protect species at risk. The current plan will prioritize protecting these species and double the protected land in the province. Vancouver Island campaigner for the Wilderness Committee, Torrance Cost, said now the government has finally clarified this funding can be used to remove areas from logging tenures and formally protect them through Indigenous leadership, 
they have no more excuses and no more time to waste. And many other groups have also come forward to promote other provinces to follow suit. And I think this kind of ties into what you were talking about earlier about setting attainable goals. And I know this isn't going to be possible for a lot of countries, especially when you think about like European countries that are like almost entirely city, if that makes sense. But if you're thinking about Canada, and if you're thinking about how much unused space we have, or space that is vulnerable to be industrialized, not necessarily for people to live, because we don't have the population, but to be used for things like logging, to be used for things like mining. And to me, this feels like an easily attainable goal for most provinces, maybe not PEI. (laughs) Maybe not PEI, but most provinces and territories, I feel like this is something that we could totally achieve. You talk about PEI, but even PEI can do things like, you know, the land that's around them is getting eroded by each intense storm we have. And I think maybe setting those goals about protecting our salt marshes. Maybe if we don't, (laughs) if you're in an area that doesn't have these old growth forests, I mean, look at the middle of our country, right? You have all our prairies. Grasslands have so much biodiversity and they're most at threat. Yes, as well. I mean, yeah, it's not particularly to protect old growth forests. It depends on the province's needs. Mm -hmm. And the ecosystem needs as well. But I Mm -hmm. think that is an attainable goal. And I think they should honestly be striving for higher. But I was going to say, yeah, there are some, certainly some provinces where more than 30%, I think, should be a goal. But I think if if other provinces can follow suit, I I think that this is, I think this is wonderful. It is a good start. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I tried to end on a more positive note this week. That was very positive. And I'm going to try my absolute hardest best to find that petition. And I will talk to all my people tonight that I'm going to this like sustainability goals thing at the Casey Irving Center. Right on. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, enjoy. You've got to leave soon. So let's wrap this up. Okay, yeah. But anyways, follow us on our Instagram and I'll find all this information that you need with the five minutes I have to eat my supper. You can follow us at Write Up Your Allergy Podcast, all lowercase, one word. In case you hadn't heard it previously two times we've said it during this episode, please go follow us on Instagram. We have all updates, all really cool photos, a lot of neat information that we do not include in our episodes as well send us an email, you know, tell us if you're enjoying our podcast. DM us on Instagram. I don't care what you do. Just let us know what you think. Yeah, and if you have a cool suggestion for our December edition of Biosphere Bulletin, make sure to send any interesting stories you find along. Or if you maybe want to have a whole episode on something, I'd love the new ideas. Yeah, I mean, I'm always open to them because sometimes I have a really hard time figuring out what to talk about. Yeah. For sure. I'm always open to ideas. But if you don't want to email us, that's fine. You can just DM us on Instagram. We'll respond. Yeah. We got nothing else to do. (laughs) Clara has plenty to do. But I don't. (laughs) And thank you to Ducks Unlimited Acadia Club for helping promote the podcast. Free advertisement. I'm so happy about it. Love to see it. Yeah, let's go. You know what? Check us out and support other science podcasts. You get to learn so much and I just, I absolutely love it. We hope you enjoyed this episode and if you didn't, well, stop listening. But I'm just kidding. (laughs) And we We hope hope this this episode episode was right up your algae. algae.